This podcast was recorded on Thursday, July 5th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. We're here on location today in fancy Berwyn, Pennsylvania. I'm here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have Noreen, uh, Noreen Beeman from Brinker Capital. Hey, how are you guys? Well, welcome to the show, Noreen. Well, welcome to Berwyn, Pennsylvania. I know I'm a little emphatic on that Berwyn. Yeah, <laughs> yes. uh, I'm trying to trying to get the enunciation correct here too. So we're right outside of Philadelphia. We're at your headquarters here, and just ha- had a great day with the team here. So well, thank you guys for coming out. We really appreciate it. Yeah. So I want to get people to know who Noreen is. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got in the business? How, I mean, you've been at Brinker for, what, 29 years? I've been at Brinker for 29 years. It's, it's kind of crazy. I started out at Ernst & Winnie, as I date myself, um, at public accounting. And I went over to work at Mutual Benefit, which was owner of MB Capital Management. And then in 1991, that was the first insurance company to get downgraded. And I had just had my eldest daughter. And it was the summer of 91. And Chuck goes, I'm going to buy the company. Do you want to come? I'm like, Okay. And here I am, 29 years later. Wow. And, and for our listeners, if you could just uh, help us out with Chuck. Who's Chuck? Uh, who's Chuck? Sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry, Chuck. Chuck Widger is Brinker Capital's founder. He's really an amazing gentleman. He started the company in 1987, and he was the leader in taking us out and helping us buy the company in 1991. So what does Brinker do for our listeners, too? So Brinker Capital actually empowers financial advisors in delivering investment products and services to help them serve an investor. So our real job is to create better outcomes, really help facilitate that financial advisor's experience in delivering that outcome to the end investor. Okay, so you're more of a solutions-based provider, not thinking solely about a strategy, perhaps, but trying to help deliver package solutions? We are a package solution provider, for sure. We're a multi-asset class, and we use firms like DoubleLine as a part of our portfolio because we really believe in bringing a total multi-asset class solution for that client. And that's where the financial advisors kind of lean on us for our asset allocation and portfolio construction work. Okay, so you started here in 1991. Take us through what's happened in the business around here over these, this is now your 20 eighth year. So what's what's happened over the course of that? It's crazy. So when I think about, you know, when I came out, we bought the company in 91. We had about $130 million under management. There were eight of us. I was the CFO of a startup, which sounds kind of fun today. But like then there's like, you're crazy. And more importantly, I got to work from home. Most people are listening are not were not born yet in 1991, and there was no technology. So I'm working from home with a crinkly fax paper is what I did, <laughs> yeah. and dot matrix printer. And so I was the CFO, had an opportunity to do some compliance work. There wasn't a lot of us. There was only eight of us, so you kind of did a lot of stuff. And then I was I went into sales. So I've done a lot of stuff at Brinker Capital. So CFO Capital. to sales. Yeah, that right? was not with an audit bag running around New York City. Was fascinating, but was really amazing because when you sit across the table in the kitchen with real investors and it's their money with the financial advisor, you really learn about your products and the outcomes there. And so Brinker took us 10 years to get to a billion once we bought ourselves. And then we went to about three or four billion in the early 2000s. We hit right before the financial crisis about 10 billion, went back to six billion. 
And currently now we sit about $22.3 billion. So as an independent firm, we have 165 people here. I'm really focused. Again, we love that financial advisor. It's been just an amazing place to be a part of. Right. So you you got elevated to the role of chief executive officer, CEO of Breaker Capital. I did. About five years ago. Is that correct? So it'll be actually six years, July. So July. Oh, I know. But you know, the first year I wasn't telling anybody. So July of 2012, I became the CEO. And I would share with you, it was January of 2018. I finally like, wow, this is what this job really is. It's a crazy job in the sense that The fun part of brainstorming and new ideas, no one really likes you to do that because they'd like to kick you out of the room, but that's what I like. So I think the team is getting more comfortable letting me keep coming back in, but I have a wonderful executive team that supports me, and we're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty about this business, right? It's ever evolving. It's always changing, right? And uh, you guys have been at the forefront of that as I think about some of your own innovations when you came up with your destination platform. Maybe you could tell our listeners about your role in that and kind of what you were seeking to provide with this platform solution. Destinations, it was a mutual fund advisory program that we started 23 years ago. And Jeff Ropp, our CIO, our chief investment officer, was a part of that team with Amy Magnata. And it was great because it wasn't a lot of multi-asset class mutual fund providers at that time, solution providers. And we did it through third-party funds. Well, now you get to a point, now it's $10 billion, you're an institutional buyer, but you're buying in the retail marketplace. So we transitioned that whole product into our own sub-advised funds. So last April of 2017, we moved $7 billion in a week from our third-party mutual funds to now our own sub-advisory funds using the same types of managers we had before. So we had great partners in that. Another shout out to my friends here at DoubleLine. They're again a great partner there. But most importantly, the team was able to, I think it's our investment team has such deep relationships with the managers that they have a lot of respect. So when we want to make that change, we had to go hand in glove. That was a partnership change. And we were able to reduce fees to our clients and all really, it was so well respected in the marketplace. And more importantly, I think it opens up a tremendous amount of new opportunities for us as we move forward. Right. Well, you guys did break a lot of ground there doing that too, right? I mean, I since heard of others trying to go on this path. And it's scary when you talk about moving $7 billion, especially across many asset class and many different managers. And when you think of, you know, that whole week, we're like, we had done all the work, we were all ready to go. And you're like, wow, okay, what happens if something goes wrong? Like, who do you call when you're moving that much money? And, you know, there was a little nitty things happened that we had to clean up, which made me feel better, because then we knew that it worked. Because if it goes 100% perfect, you're like, what did we miss? We had a great communication team. I would tell you, I didn't sleep much that week, but I could not be prouder of the work the whole group did. It was really exciting. Yes, you've been known for helping create a, a good culture here at Brinker. How do you set that culture? How do you set that tone? I mean, you've been a leader around here for a long period of time. What do you think really embodies the Brinker Capital culture? And what are you trying to pass on to the next generation? I have to give a lot of credit to Chuck Widger, our founder, and John Coyne, who's since retired, but who was our vice chair. And and those three gentlemen, three of them, including me, the three of us, was all about family. And family is how you define it. It doesn't mean that you have children. It doesn't mean that you're married. It's a friend. It's a pet. There's someone in your life you care about. And if you don't create some flexibility and space around that, so we're really big around creating flexibility. I think I said 1991, I worked at home. I never would have survived. I think there's, you know, I'm 54. Put it right out there. There's a lot of women my age that didn't make it, not because they didn't want to work, but they didn't have an environment that allowed them to have be able to serve their families and their communities the way they wanted to. And I think it's incumbent on companies to think about that for a talent. And so 
I would say the culture here is about being respected. It's about caring. We say it's the Brinker family, and every client's part of our family. And we need to be thoughtful about treating each other with respect and then also holding each other accountable because you can't have people not doing their side of the street. And then you have to have fun. Who wants to come to work every day and not have any fun? So we try to have a little bit of fun. What's well, what I say about our team, too. Same, same thing. We tried to build you know, a culture, family. And I say the thing about family is you love each other. Sometimes you're upset with each other. Sometimes you have to get in a room and work it out. But also it makes you stronger. It builds that camaraderie through time. And so doing some research you know, on you and your background, we found that you've won a lot of awards for this type of stuff, too. Women to Watch, you know, in the Diversity Journal. It's been a big thing that you've been pushing around here. Is that, is that fair to say? So I would share with you, I am not someone that is comfortable. Actually, I'm enjoying this because it, we're all just the four of us together. I really don't like being up on a panel. Those awards are lovely, and I'm very appreciative of it, but that's not what gets me going. But my 27-year-old daughter, when she was just going on to law school, she called me out and said I wasn't really standing up and making sure other women saw what they could do. And at the Women to Watch event, they said, you can't be what you can't see. And the fact there's so few women CEOs in our industry, that's opportunity. And so I have to give Elizabeth a lot of credit because she really said, mom, you're not doing it. And think of all the panels that you guys go to. And they call them mantles now because usually mostly men. I have had a hard time getting women to go on panels. And I was one of those bad professionals that didn't like to do that either. And so now I'm making an effort to do that, even if it's out of my comfort zone. Right. Well, that's awesome, really, because what what you just said, too, is it's outside of your comfort zone, but you want to be a leader and you realize it's by example, right? It's not saying, it's doing, right? And you're setting that example from the top here at a well-respected organization, and you're really active in the community as well. And it's important because I think the thing is that we only can be as good as other people, you know, in terms of being a part of the the team and networking with other people in the industry and really setting an example for the young professionals as they come along. So that's something I'm really working hard at. Well, I mean, with regard to setting the the example for incoming uh, talent, you know, you've gone from CFO to sales to CEO. Each one of those seems to have its own distinct skill set and what it takes to be successful in that job. What do you see it as the unifying skills that you've had that have allowed you to, to navigate that? I would tell you hard work. Nothing beats it. You know, so as a CFO is, you know, what's interesting, sometimes I even lean on those skills now because I can go back. Numbers are actually very comforting to me and I can go back and put a spreadsheet together. My husband's like, why are you printing out ledger paper? I'm like, because I'm writing, I need bigger font today, but I really like to do a spreadsheet. I like to know how the clock, you know, how you make the watch, put it together, take it apart. But it's people skills. Sales was really difficult when I first went out. And I loved it, though, at the end. And then this job is the first job I can't outwork. And it's more about because I have to rely on all the people that work with me as opposed to me doing the work. So it's um, in that respect, it was a little, I think that's why this year is the first time I'm feeling really comfortable in the role. I was trying to do too many micromanaging and you know, who likes that boss? So I'm working on that, too. Yeah, that's the hardest thing about being successful is, you know, the old sayings is you rise to your highest level of incompetence, right? I guess CEO is pretty competent, though, right? So that's really a counterexample, too. And I think it is a testament to being able to listen and, and change, too, right? And I would tell you that's one of the things we just had a meeting with our Brinker Capital Credit and HR Congress, and we just talked about training and professional development. I have an outside coach. I go to a lot of different, you know, types of learning opportunities. And, you know, I probably read about 30 to 40 books a year. 
because I love it. I mean, that's not certainly other people like to get learning, you know, do different types of things. But I truly have a very eclectic taste in types of books I like to read. And so honestly, like what? give us some so example. the last one um, I read uh, Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson, and that was a little bit of a push, but I, I did finish it in Aruba, which is not the, probably the best place to read that. You might you might need a little more of a trashy novel. I've been currently listening to I'm listening to this one, The Lying Game by Ruth Ware. I just finished reading her second novel but she had done in the deep dark woods or deep deep dark woods kind of kooky spy thing and then man's search for meaning by victor frankel oh my goodness what we had done that as a part of the book here with my offsite power of moments we just finished that on the offsite and my newest favorite was the hard things about hard things you guys all need to read that and i'm forgetting the gentleman who wrote it right now but it's an awesome book okay well we'll we'll note that that one i'm telling you it's an awesome book So in trying to recruit folks to come here at Brinker Capital, and you know, you talk about women in industry, you talk about young analysts, you know, people who want to get involved, what kind of advice would you give to them? How, how do you uh, approach the, the skill set? I mean, it's not just outworking people, like you always said, too, but what kind of advice would you give folks that want to have a career at some place like Brinker? So I think one is being intellectually curious. You're never going to know everything, so you have to be willing to go find out those answers and, more importantly, ask the question. I enjoy working with the young professionals here that'll tell me, I just don't know that, you know, as opposed to pretending, you know, like, cause you know, we've all done that. But yeah. You know, it's like, just tell me you don't, I, I'm totally fine with that. Like, you know, go after it. And I also think it's important, like, pick your head up, shake someone's hand, say hello. You know, those are things that, you know, social skills are important as well as the intellectual um, curiosity about really getting to it. And ultimately at Brinker Capital, I think most financial services, you need to, it's, what do we call financial services? It's in service to others. That's really what we're all trying to do. We all have a purpose of being in service to others. And so that's just, if that's a part of who you are, then t- it tends to fit well in our organization. Well, I think sometimes there's this castigation of the industry that says, oh, it's about money. And, and all you're doing is trying to make money on money. But really, as you said at the beginning, a solution, right? You're trying to help people plan their lives, plan the next generation, or just get through retirement, or try to save for a trip one day, right? Right. So how do you live, we all, you know, we would say, how do you live the life you work for? And the money that financial advisors and giving good advice and building those solutions is, whether it's retirement, philanthropic, putting your kids through school, going on a trip, really, that's what the, the money's for. What is the money for? And our job is to be that kind of that engine that helps it grow and protect it. Right. So as you think to the future, I mean, now you're pretty well seasoned here in the CEO role. How do you view Brinker going forward? What would you like to bring to the industry? I mean, you you guys have been innovators through the cycles. What would you like to really do as a next step and and try to create a a further legacy? Because you already have one going already. Well, thank you. I would say that what's important is that how are we creating that connection? How are we really engaging with that end investor? Really, the behavioral finance part of, we all talk about goals and we're still talking about the S&P or the ag. Like, why are we talking about institutional benchmarks when these are real people with real issues and their, their money? So I just think it's an opportunity for us to help change the conversation. And I know we're a part of a larger group of people trying to do that. And, you know, I just see a big runway there because at the end, the retirement crisis will become real when people don't have pensions. So what are we going to do? When you retire and you have a million dollars, that sounds like a lot of money to you have to live 15 years in retirement. And how are we going to help people get that paycheck out of that 401k account? Right. Because, you know, pulling out 60000 a year, 
you know, it's gone in a very quick manner of time if you don't have a good way of preserving that capital right. and trying and to create some income, it. right? Exactly right. And then when you think of, you know, the whole idea of target dates is as you got to the end of retirement, you don't really put your assets in growth. But if you're going to live 15, 20 years in that, you really need a good plan. No, I think so too. And we, we've thought about this too. And is the target date model the way it's assigned, the glide pass and everything, is it really right? You know, yes, you need the income, but there's still a piece of the pie that needs to grow, right? Or you're just going to be siphoning off the funds over it, especially at bond yields where they are today. Well, exactly. So if you think of reverse dollar cost averaging, that's not a good plan. So how do you create a distribution strategy that's really built on some financial planning benchmarks as well as coming up with a good engine that's going to drive for that 10 to 15 years you might live in retirement? And so it's an opportunity for all of us, I think, to lean in on trying to figure that out. Well, and as longevity increases, maybe the retirement age is a bit longer, too. But no one wants to listen to that. No, no one wants yeah. to think about that. Like, we want, this, we want the quick and easy. You know, we want to pill the solution, right? Well, what are you going to tell people? Work longer, save more, spend less. Yes, yeah, life of the party. Hey, I just think you need to work five more years and you should spend 10% less. And you know what? You really should be saving all of that. Like, no one really wants to hear that. But I think we can change that conversation to empower people to say, you know what? I'm going to work a little longer because this is what it's going to do and really provide a guide, you know, guidelines are there. And if I save 5% more, what was fascinating to me, even in my own little ecosystem at home with my daughters, and we, we went and did their first budget, the Keurig became a much better solution than maybe a 5 or $6 cup of coffee when you're paying for it yourself. Like it's just thinking about, all right, I'd rather go out on a Saturday and go and do these things versus spending 50 bucks between now and then. It's really about setting those expectations early as well, getting it into that mindset, changing it. Well, the biggest power, the people talk about compounding, but a lot of it's just putting the money to work, right? It's the savings rate. And you don't want to, a lot of people don't want to hear that. I mean, Sam, you may not know this about him, but he's actually in retirement right now. Retirement's tough. I got to tell you that. It's not, it's not what I thought it would be. Yeah. So he's retired to being a co-host of the, of the show here. And you know, it, it's a completely different model. He's working through retirement. And that's a totally different game. <laughs> so, so I want to rewind this a little bit because it's something I've gone to. We, we have a lot of guests here. We, we talk quant models. We talk about macro. Uh, we talk about providing solutions to folks. But the one thing that resonated with me when you said that is behavioral. So what are you guys trying to do from Brinker's standpoint? What footprint are you trying to put on the behavioral side? What, what are you thinking about when you say that? Chuck Ridger and Dr. Daniel Crosby wrote a book called Personal Benchmark, and that was in 2012. And it was really around somewhat of a bucketing strategy, what's your safety assets, what's your growth assets. There's a book that Chuck has just shared with us, The Aspirational Investor. And it's really around thinking about safety, growth, but more about what are my aspirations? What am I going to be putting in that other bucket? And our hope with changing the conversation around behavior is really understanding triggers. What triggers that behavior? Watching, you know, is it something to do with the VIX? Is it something to do with the Dow? Is it something to do with the weather? We really need to dig in. At what ages do clients start to make maybe different decisions than they made? Dr. Daniel Crosby and I were looking at maybe a behavioral innovation lab to try a lot of different things, like take it outside of just pure finance and really start to think about what are the triggers? And if you're in a partnership, how are the questions? How are you both asking, answering questions about money? Right. I see that a lot with, you see these um, kind of studies too on men versus women, that women tend to be better investors because they're more 
systematic and, you know, they don't have that feeling and passion sometimes the male species exhibits to when it comes to this. And being a little more patient. So they tend to be a little more patient investors. And I think of, you know, my husband and I, we just did the analysis and he was surprised that I wanted more of a safety bucket. I just don't want to worry about it. Where he was like, I'm like, okay, well, that's, and more than even thinking about how we want to think about spending. I'm worrying about our extended family. He's not. We just had a different perspective. I'm like, okay. So it's, it's good to know that. And it's good to know things about yourself that actually I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I don't want to have any debt. Well, is that really a good idea? Probably not. Well, you need a little leverage. Need, That's the American needs, way. Right? You, you know? need a little leverage. Way, right? But it's really thinking about what, where you are in your own journey and how you think about money. You just have to be able to outperform the cost of borrowing. That's, That's exactly the key. right. That's the key. You don't, that <laughs> negative leverage doesn't help too. But I think it was interesting the way you describe it too because you called it a partnership. You know, you talk about your partner. And so that word partner connotes the idea that you should be working together. Exactly. And, I, and having conversations, you know, one of part of our core values is we say we value open and honest conversations at Brinker. We would like to be, it's a little aspirational. So we value them, but they're hard to have. Right. It's like going to the doctor when they ask you, well, you know, how much steak do you eat? How many drinks do you have a week? None. I have none of those. I don't know what's wrong. Why my cholesterol is high. <laughs> right. It just happened. I woke up this morning with it. But I think it's the same thing when it comes to financial planning. It's like uh, a lot of times investors come to you and say, I just need you to figure it out. I don't want to change anything in my lifestyle. Just give me the magic solution, right? And, and let's have an honest conversation. And then they, you said a spending plan even, and then they don't spend what you said and they're disappointed with the outcome. Well, reality is we have to, let's have some more open and honest conversations about what, what you're really thinking, what you really need. And then I can be honest with you about how reasonable your expectations are. Given the current industry, I mean, I think this is on the lips of all the independent advisors out there talking about how to provide more value here. It's not just in fees, fee reduction. You know, you've got to earn what the services you're charging for, right? And so it's it's helping people, you know, better achieve those goals. But what do you see as some of the challenges ahead as we talk to investors and, you know, sitting in your seat and you're trying to think about this big platform you have, what do you see as some of the challenges that sit forth in 2018? The financial advisor's model is somewhat under siege in the sense that with fee compression and expectation of service, and you have to balance those when you're running your business like a business. And I think the true value of a financial advisor is when money can't fix the problem. Because when money can fix a problem, you can fi- it's a real problem. But when money can't fix it, and that's when that financial advisor built that relationship and something bad happened in their family or some other challenges or they lost their job, whatever it is, that's when the financial advisor comes and said, remember, we planned for this. I understand we didn't plan for this. Let's, how are we going to replan? And that's the value of the advisor. And that's the human touch. So how are they going to use technology to make it personalized when they're serving more clients because the model you need to serve more clients today and I think in the future than in the past in a more personalized way not necessarily customized but personalized but personalized yeah and I think there's a big distinction there right because people think that oh if you have too many clients it becomes commoditized and watered down but I would say that what I see in the advisor side is akin to what we've seen kind of in the manager side right so if you look at mutual funds or actively managed mutual funds a lot of them were somewhat indexed in disguise, right? And high fee. And the, it's not the fee pressure that really showed people that there was something wrong. It's that, oh, what am I getting for this price I'm paying? And so I think it's at both levels that you, if your pay managers have views, they should be trying to follow a process they think is superior. But it comes to the same thing to your advisor, 
right? That the advisor just can't sit back and clip big payments. Well, if you're going to dial it in, they're going to figure it out. And I think what I love, one of the meetings that we had had in the past when we talked about active managers do can outperform. You got to have a good active manager. But if you're an index closet indexer, there's just really no opportunity there. And are we paying the right fees then if you're a closet indexer? Yeah, I, I have to say one the, in the institutional community, the one thing I hate, and here goes some of our institutional business, but it's the tracking error. It's like, oh, you can only have 100 basis points of tracking error, 1% you know, deviation from the benchmark. It's it, and, but we want 300 basis points alpha. Right. So we want this insane, implausible target. And we see it all the time, you know, too. It's like, but you can't deviate too much. We want you to have full discretion, do whatever you want. But by the way, but no you, risk. There should be no risk in that portfolio. Right. So <laughs> so I, we do we do find it interesting. And I was traveling a couple of years ago and I ran to a gentleman who I, I unfortunately can't recall his name right now, but he called something he called it the ACE ratio. And he said it's alpha cost effective. And it's resonated with me because it's like, that's exactly right. You're supposed to be able to outperform risk adjusted, absolute, whatever that target is. But then look at the fees relative you're paying for that, right? And so I think that's where some of the hedge fund models been under siege, the, the siege, the two and 20 and the likes. But at the end of the day, there's people that deserve the two and 20. And right? if they do a great job and you pick them and then you're happy with that outcome, I think it's wonderful. And one of the reasons we actually moved to that new mutual fund structure, we cut out a significant amount of fees and pass that back to the investor because it was the right thing to do. And I think all of us have to look at our businesses and identify where we can cut the costs that aren't delivering the value on the value proposition to the end investor. And therefore, fees will line up. You got to look at your margins at the end of the day, right? It's still a people business. Even with all the increase in technology, yes, we can do more with less people, but there's still a lot of hands-on analysis and there's a lot of interaction. And it really, as you, I think you said when we start off, it is a people business, right? Sam, what do you think about the people business? You're a people person. I love people. I love people. And at the end of the day, you got to please them, right? <laughs> Otherwise, what are we in this business for, right? Delivering those results. That's right. So give me one thing you've really learned as you've rose to leadership. One thing that you probably didn't know earlier in your career that you really know today. That's that, that influential thing or that, that missing link that you wish you would have known 20 years ago that would have helped you be a better leader back then. Well, I had reflected on this at the Women to Watch event. And I talked about, you know, one of my things in running so hard and trying to be the best mom, the best sister, the best wife, and the best employee, and then the best leader is that I, I always wanted to get it right. And the reality is you have to give yourself a break. Take a deep breath, take a minute, and let people see who you are. And then you find that you have a tremendous amount of connections. And I do think that I wished over time, I had just said to myself, breathe. And those are things that I didn't quite give myself all the way along. You know, I'm, I'm an old lady now. So now I say to myself, you better breathe or we're going to fall out, fall down. So well, it's different what, dynamic. Well, that's what we did before. <laughs> when you came in here, you're running up here from the board meeting. And I just said, I think I said to you, just breathe. Breathe. This is just a conversation. You have to take a minute. You know, Sam's uh, wife is listening. My mom's listening. You know, there's not and, many people out there. really. that's awesome. Right. Hi, Sam. It's mom. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, perhaps we can end, uh, bring it full circle and end it with a personal note. Before we fired up the mics, I mentioned Philadelphia Eagles. We're here, uh, very close to Philly. And yes. Your immediate response was? New York Giants. The background on that is a hometown, so, um I am a f- season ticket holder to the New York Giants. My family is in North Jersey. Um, mutual benefits started, it was in New Jersey. And so when Chuck bought the company, I said, that's okay, but I'm really staying in New Jersey. So I live in Pennsylvania during the week, but I am a weekender in New Jersey. And I'm very excited about this year. Saquon Barkley, our man Eli, Odell. 
Yeah. It's going to be a tough... We have an offensive line. I'm so excited. I was buying into the hype when they were saying Odell may come to the Niners. Uh, I got got really excited. We're not letting him go. But I will tell you, the biggest thing of the offseason for the Niners is that we picked up Richard Sherman. So guess what kind of 49ers jersey Mr. Sherman's going to have this year. I'm very excited about that. Um, So again, I'm waiting until the season's getting close to start. I've got to pick out the right color. Yes, and you'll be good to go. I I may end up ending up with a couple of them too. I have a feeling. And to my Eagles fans here, you know, it was very painful. I did wear green though. I I had to support them. I could not support the Patriots. You know, I have to do my hometown here. So as painful as that was. Yeah, I think when you look at the maps, there wasn't a lot of Patriots fans out there, or at least rooting for them uh, during the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, this one, the Eagles needed a turn. Okay, well, thanks, Noreen. I know it's a busy day. You had a board meeting, and you know, you've been running back and forth, so we really appreciate the time. But we'd be remiss if we didn't do Sam's favorite part of the show. So, Sam, why don't you uh, let Noreen know about Sherman Says. Yeah, Sherman says, Noreen. So what I do is I, I say a word, a term, and hopefully elicit a response from you. And then what I do is I alternate. Actually, I start with Mr. Sherman typically, and then I alternate back and forth with the guests. So starting out with Mr. Well, Sherman. Well, we're supposed to try to do it with one word, but Sam has I'm given up on that. that. Yeah. So you, you don't one quite do one word. Uh, but you, you try. <laughs> okay. okay but, but he's frustrated now. So Yeah, we've had paragraphs. We, we also, one thing that's funny is we also did it with Sam and I. He couldn't do it in one word. And at that point, he gave up on trying to. On the one uh, word. Yeah, right. Yeah, I go off on tangents, so it's... it's uh, First word, first term, I should say, current book that you're reading. Uh, the uh, Portrait of Dory Gray, Ooh, Oscar Wilde. Interesting. Favorite book? Jane Eyre. Global growth? Continuing. Asset allocation? Multi-asset class. Philadelphia? Cheesesteak. Corporate culture? Happiness. European Union? So many ways to go with that one. Project? Robo-advisors? Opportunity. Hashtag. Mike Ryan. Childhood dream job. I wanted to be a florist. And then I realized it was making a lot of work. Making people happy, yeah. but you're <laughs> making I people it was, happy. It was, I enjoyed having the flowers more than I would have enjoyed working so hard to deliver the flowers. So do you think that's one thing, I, before we end it, so you said that, do you think that by working at something, you kind of destroy some of that passion? No, I, I maybe, I don't know. It was just I realized how hard it, that's really hard work. I, maybe that was it is. I realized I wouldn't be good at it. Fair enough. Well, thank you for the time, Noreen. This has been The Sherman Show. You can catch us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, some other uh, apps I know nothing about, wherever you get your podcast serves from. So again, thanks to Noreen Beeman for being here today in Berwyn, Pennsylvania. So thank thanks for you. having us. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respective 
of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double-Line Capital.